Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Judges. We're in a series of messages where we're going through the Bible book by book, giving a synopsis of each of the books of the Bible so that we can come to understand kind of the landscape of Scripture and how the Word of God unfolds, the story of God uh, as uh, it is revealed to us. Today we're in the book of Judges, and here's the key concept for this morning. We have met the enemy, and he is us. What I'm meaning there is that in Judges, we come to understand that we are our own worst enemy as we disregard the will of God and follow our own purpose and way. As you're finding the beginning of the book of Judges, I want to read to you the very last verse. This is a verse actually that is repeated throughout the book, but it's given to us in the very last verse as a summary for everything that we've read in the book of Judges and the times that we see. In verse 25 of chapter 21, it says, In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. The summary for the times of the judges is, in a word, anarchy. It is chaos. This is the scene as we come to the beginning of the book of Judges. As Judges opens, Joshua is dead. And there is no line of succession, no clear leader to stand in his place. As much as anything else, Judges is a book about leadership or the lack of leadership and what happens. There is no capital. There is no government. There is no unifying figure in the land. And as a result of that, the conquest of the land that we read about as we looked at Joshua last week slows dramatically. The people grow comfortable with their partial victory. They are war-weary. And they begin to be influenced by the people that they are meant to drive out of the promised land. We're in a section of scripture that we call the historical books here in the book of Judges. In fact, if you were to read through the Bible, you would come to be aware that most of the books of the Bible are historical books. The Bible tells us the history of God's working in his creation from the dawn of creation to the end of time. The Bible spans all of that history. And the Bible is mostly history because of its central theme. The central theme of the Word of God is that this is news, good news, gospel. This is what has happened. God has done this, and we are called to respond. And when you study history, this goes for any kind of history, but particularly biblical history, You study history on any one of four levels. You can look at the personalities of history, the individual history makers, and study the biographies of those who've made history. Or you can look at the people groups of history, the nations, and how God has raised up and taken down nations. Thirdly, you could study the patterns of history and see see how history comes in cycles and, and the patterns are repeated. One man has said, History repeats itself because no one's ever listening. And that seems to be the case. Or you could study the purpose of history. And when you study the purpose of history, you are studying history from a uniquely biblical perspective, from a uniquely Christian perspective. You see, when we look at the history of the way that God has worked in the world, we believe as followers of the one true God that God is guiding history towards a designated future. That he has a purpose and he has a plan. And as we study the flow of history, we come to be aware of the way that he's leading us forward in his plan. It's uniquely Christian to ask the question, what is the purpose of all of this history? 
Now I introduce you to you those different ways of study because when we come to the book of Judges, it is tempting to only look at the personalities of history, to look only at the individuals because their stories are so outrageous as we read through the book of Judges. But I also want you to see the pattern. There is a pattern to the history of the book of Judges. It is a repeated pattern over and over again. And this is the pattern. It is sin, then subjection, then supplication, and then salvation at the hands of a hero. The people fall into sin. Through the sin, they, they experience subjection of some kind of enemy. And in their desperation, they call out to God in supplication. And he raises up a hero that we call a judge to give them freedom. When Judges begins, it's notable that the glorious victory that their ancestors hoped for did not materialize. The nation is not able to defeat the inhabitants of the land. Now, they may blame it on the fact that they had metal chariots and so their technology was superior, and it was, or the fact that the Canaanites were ferocious fighters fighting to the death, and they were. But the real reality, the real reason for why the glorious victory never really happened is given to us in chapter 2, verse 1. Go there with me and let's read. I'm going to start at the very last sentence of the first verse of the second chapter. God is speaking there and he says, I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Therefore, I tell you, that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. You see, the only reason that the Israelites experienced the victories that we read about in the book of Joshua last week was because God was fighting for them. They were not able in their own strength to find those victories. God was on their side. He called them to be the arm of his judgment against these societies and to inhabit the land. And they have been clearly warned, don't mingle with the Canaanites, don't marry them, drive them out. You are to be the ones who exercise my judgment. But the Israelites decided against that plan of God. They decided to co comfortably coexist with the ones on whom God had pronounced judgment. Their thinking must have sounded something like this. Well, you know, these Canaanites don't seem so bad. I mean, some of them are witty and smart. They're pretty. They're handsome. Surely God was too harsh when he pronounced judgment on them. And so they went from coexisting with the enemies to compromise with the enemies. And soon they intermarry with the enemies and are led into idolatry. And I want you to understand what God is saying. Here is how I'm going to punish you. I will let you do what you want. That's punishment. When we decide to follow our own will and our own way rather than God's way, when he says, okay, that is punishment. Because God's way is always better. God's way is always blessed. And he punishes them by saying, okay, have it your way. Intermingle with them and they will be a snare to you. But they have been warned and the warning was clear. Moses, back in Deuteronomy 20, completely destroy them. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worship of their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. And that's exactly what happened, but worse. Go forward to verse 10 of chapter 2. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's worse. The parents did not pass their faith on to their children. They did not pass their awareness of who the one true God really is to their children. The second generation of occupants in the land grew up and they had no knowledge of their God. And so when the tests came, they failed. And the cycle began. Sin, subjection, supplication, salvation, over and over again. In a series of heroes that the Bible calls judges. There's 13 of them in all. They are Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Isban, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. Most of them you haven't heard of. But all of them were involved in the cycle. They were the ones that God used to bring the nation back to repentance. We don't have time to focus on 13, but we'll focus on three, the ones maybe you have heard of. The first one is Deborah. Go to chapter 4. We hear the story of Deborah in chapter 4. Deborah was a woman leader in a man's world. We begin her story by reading verse 1 of chapter 4. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashoreth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. We need to understand that those 13 judges did not provide heroic salvation for the entire nation, but rather they worked in different geographical areas. And so some of them overlap in time, but in different areas of the country. And in the area of the country where Deborah was, the king of Hazor was the one who dominated their situation. For 20 years, they were the masters where Deborah lived. His armies were led by a general named Sisera. But Deborah was passionate about overthrowing the domination of this evil king. The king of Hazor and his rule made her blood boil. And I pause there because it's a question for us. What makes your blood boil? What evil? What sin? What immorality? Where, when you scan the culture, when you scan the landscape of our day, where do you look at something and say, that cannot continue? I must do something about that. I know it's against the will of God. Is there anything that gets you passionate about doing something against the evil in our day? I say that because it is easy to settle into an apathy, easy to settle into a lifestyle that even though we know it's wrong, well, we'll let other people worry about it. We'll let somebody else take care of it. Other people can deal with it. That was not Deborah. She was passionate about speaking the word of the Lord, calling her nation away from apathy. She is the only judge that is also called a prophet or a prophetess. It means she spoke the word of God. Prophet means mouthpiece, spokesman. She speaks to her culture. She speaks to her time. She's calling them away from apathy. She was passionate about releasing the, ch the children of Israel from this domination. But she had a general who was apathetic, her general, Barak. He was shirking his duty. His key concern was his own comfort, and his motto was, don't make waves. But Deborah sought him out. Look at verse 6. 
She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And here's the response. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. He is hoping she will back out. He's couching it in flattery, trying to lift her you know, spirits up, but hoping that but when really challenged to be in battle, she will back out and it won't be his fault. But she sees through the flattery to the cowardice, and she responds, verse 9, Very well, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, if you were to stop the story right there, you would think that she would be the woman who would get the glory. But in reality, that's not what happens. The battle is engaged. And there is a detail in her strategy, Deborah's strategy, that was brilliant. They brought the, the armies of Hazor down to the river, down to the area by the river. What happens there? The ground grows soft. And where were the armaments of Hazor superior? In iron chariots. History tells us that in the battle, the iron chariots got stuck. They couldn't, they couldn't advance. And so the Israelites were victorious that day. And, and General Sisera has to leave his chariot, run on foot, fleeing the battle because the chariots weren't moving. And he ran to the tent of a Bedouin woman. Exhausted from battle and exhausted from his flight, he goes into this Bedouin woman and he asks her to give him refuge. She hides him under the rug in her tent and he's so tired he falls asleep. And while he sleeps, that Bedouin woman, Jael, kills him. She gets the glory for the battle, along with Deborah. And in chapter 5, Deborah sings the song of victory. Go to the very last verse of chapter 5. Here's the end of the cycle. Salvation has come. The oppressors are thrown off. She sings the song of victory, verse 5. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And the narrator says, then the land had peace for 40 years. Go to the next verse. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And the cycle begins again. Sin, subjection, supplication, salvation at the hands of a hero. And this time the hero is Gideon. But Gideon is somebody that, when you, if you were to look at them, him, he would, you would say he's anything but a hero. He doesn't come off like the hero type. He's the son of idol-worshipping Jews. Not a natural hero by personality or temperament, but the Lord comes to him. In verse 11, here's what we read. The angel of the Lord came and sat down of the, under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abbey's right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I don't know what happens in your mind's eye when you hear the phrase, mighty warrior, who you picture. But chances are you don't picture yourself. And Gideon did not picture himself. He's in a situation that speaks of utter defeat. The Midianites are dominating the land to the point where the Israelites cannot plant and harvest their crops. What happens when you can't plant and harvest your crops? Famine. There's starvation. 
they're fleeing as, as refugees into all neighboring countries and the few people who stay behind are just trying to eke out a little food for themselves. Keep that in mind when next week we move to the book of Ruth because it's from this exact same time period. And, and Gideon is down threshing wheat in the wine press. Wheat is meant to be threshed in the top, on the top of the hills in the open air where when you beat it, the chaff flies away. But that is obvious. That can be seen. He's hiding down in the valley with just a little bit, beating it in the wine press, the little trough where the grape juice would flow. And there, hiding away, he's seeking to get just a little bit of grain for himself, he, just to eat, but under the radar so that the Midianites don't get him and don't get his food. Gideon is hiding, but God sees him and calls him mighty warrior. Gideon goes like this. What? Somebody behind me? But look at the end of the story. I'll put it on the screen. It says in Judges 8.28, Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime in the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. This ordinary man who was afraid for his life and his food did well in leading the nation. But along the way, he shows us some battle tactics that we would do well to imitate in our spiritual battle. Right here in chapter 6, battle tactic number one, to win in spiritual warfare, take God's promises personally. Do not hide behind generalizations. Gideon tries it right here in uh, uh, verse 12 and 13. The Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13, but sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Understand, the Lord is saying, the Lord is with you, singular, you, personally, Gideon. But Gideon generalizes, he puts the focus out to everybody, kind of getting the attention off of himself. It is a well-used tactic when people are seeking to avoid the call that God is placing on their lives and the responsibility they have before him. Satan wants you to generalize. If you have to come to church, if you have to be in a Bible study, if you have to read your Bible, what Satan wants you to do is to learn grand and lofty principles that you apply to all of humanity but never get around to applying it to yourself. That's what Satan wants you to do with the truths you hear here. Too easily we fall into that sin of hiding behind generalizations. We pray, Lord, bless the poor. We never do anything to help them. We pray, Lord, get, reach the lost. We never speak the gospel. We say things like somebody ought to do something about that, but we're never doing it. You hide behind generalizations. You are doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. Gideon started to go down that direction, but the Lord pressed on, called him personally. We also hear from the call of Gideon that God sees you according to your potential, and we need to believe it. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He doesn't feel like a warrior. He doesn't look like a warrior. But God is saying to Gideon, don't limit yourself by right now. Because I see what you can be, mighty warrior. And he's saying the exact same thing to you. Don't limit yourself by the trappings of the moment. Don't evaluate yourself by only looking back or only looking around. God sees the future. And he's bringing you to a destination in his power. And he will work through you. See yourself the way God sees you, with potential. Thirdly, don't wait for tomorrow's strength. Act in the strength you have today. I love verse 14. It is underlined in my Bible, and I have little notes next to it. 
The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Now Gideon would have said, I don't have the strength to save Israel. I, I don't even have an idea of how to do that. I, I don't have that ability. What he's saying is, you have the ability to start. Go in the strength that you have today is a faith commitment, saying, I will use the strength I have today for the steps I take today, believing by faith that tomorrow new strength will be given. Go in the strength that you have today means get going, begin, and have the faith that I will use you for the struggles that are coming down the road. It's a challenge for us as well. It's easy for us to say, I can't handle it. I can't do it. I don't see how I'm going to solve it. And God is saying the exact same thing. Just take the next step and believe me for my strength tomorrow. You can't get alone on tomorrow's strength. You can't get alone on tomorrow's blessings. You've got to use today's today. And God will show up tomorrow. Gideon does this day by day, step by step. And at the end, Midian was subdued. The last hero I want you to notice is the hero Samson. Turn to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, we're breaking into the middle of Samson's career. He is fighting against the Philistines. Each of these fights against a different enemy. There are enemies all around. And the book of Joshua, we noted that the Philistines was one of the groups specifically mentioned as not conquered. And they are a thorn in the side of Israel for generations. But here, Samson is, is uh, fighting against them. And he is a flawed hero. He has a, a lot of character flaws. He's violent, he's vengeful, he's deceptive, he's disrespectful, he's sex-addicted, and he's proud. In terms of his character, this is a very weak man. But physically, he's strong when the spirit comes on him. He is what Hollywood would call the anti-hero, the one who's bad but you end up rooting for. Samson is a gifted but troubled guy. His character flaws are his downfall, and thus he does not achieve what he could have. Go to just up one verse from chapter 16 to the end of chapter 15, verse 20. It says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Did you catch that last part? In the days of the Philistines. In other words, he did not achieve the mission of the hero. When you read the story of Samson, you're reading his exploits. You read that he was ferocious in battle and had a way with the ladies, okay? But the job of the judge was to throw off the oppressors, and he never did. His character flaws caused that. For Samson, it was sexual lust. Verse, no, chapter 16, when it opens up, he's in the house of a prostitute. As the chapter unfolds, finally when we get to around verse 20 and 21, he's with his final girlfriend. Delilah, and she's coaxing out of him his secrets for his strength, and he gives it up. In verse 21, we see the results. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. There's a significant thing there. We don't pick it up, but the god of the Philistines was Dagon. He was the god of grain. In putting Samson to work grinding grain, they are humiliating him and seeking to humiliate his God. And time goes by as Samson in the prison. And one day it's a feast day. Samson has been the, the oppressor against the Philistines. He's been violent against them all his life. And now he's in their prison. So they haul him out on a feast day to seek to humiliate him. 
in front of the people to mock him and his God in the temple of Dagon. And Samson leans up against those pillars and he prays for strength once again. See, the strength was never his. The strength was always the strength of the Lord. In verse 30, we see the result. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers of all, and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. But do you see what's missing from that epitaph? There's no mention of peace in the land. There's no mention of years of following after God. Samson did not achieve the role of the judge. His personal demons cost him his life and his legacy. And then if you were to read the remainder of the book of Judges, you would find that there is nothing but division and discord to follow all the way through chapter 21. The lesson is this. No people can rise above their image of God. You become what you worship. And they were worshiping foul and sensual pagan idols, and they became a foul and sensual people. There's no cycle towards repentance in the rest of the book. There's no emergence of a hero in the rest of the book. It gets worse and worse. The land is in chaos. The culture is in ruins. Idolatry is rampant, bringing perversity and violence and murder and eventually civil war. The entire nation goes to war against the tribe of Benjamin because of an act of perverse sex that happens in that tribe. You see, I want you to see that the cycle that we're talking about is actually a spiral downward. That when you live your life like that, eventually the subjection doesn't register anymore. Eventually you don't call out in supplication anymore. And it gets worse and worse as your heart is hardened by sin. So by the time you get to second, uh, First Samuel, we'll be there in two weeks, the people are so desperate, they call out for a king. Give us a king. But they find that the king isn't the solution that they think. Well, there are some important lessons for the way we live our lives that are embedded in the book of Judges. Most of them learned from what we want to avoid doing. But let's put them in positive terms. Lesson number one, parents. Advise your children well about the things of the Lord. The second generation grew up without knowing God. They were not prepared and they were not trained, and so when they tested, they were tested, they failed. We must teach our children the truths of God, train them to be lifelong worshipers so that they too can hand the faith over to their children. Number two, acknowledge the area of vulnerability. Satan is looking for the area of vulnerability in us all. For Samson, it was sexual lust, and we live in an over-sexualized society. And Satan is going through that door for many. We must ask the Lord for strength there. Number three, avoid temptation. Once again, Samson played with fire. All throughout his story, he's going to the wrong places, he's hanging out with the wrong people and eventually doing the wrong things because he put himself in the line of fire. There are places you should not go. There are people you should not be with. There are things you should not do. Make the choice to avoid temptation and step out of that stream. Thirdly, uh, fourthly, ask the Lord to, for help. All of the judges that were victorious were victorious because they asked the Lord for his strength. No one was able on their own, and we're not able. Ask the Lord for strength and help. Corey Ten Boom has written these words, There is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Call out to him, and he will lift you up. And that's always true.